0: Hello, and welcome to Siren Coffee and Science, a series of conversations on hot topics in health and social care integration brought to you by the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at the University of California, San Francisco. Today's episode was originally recorded as a live web event and has been lightly edited for this podcast.
1: So welcome to Siren Coffee and Science. I'm Dr. Kelly Kelleher, I'm a pediatrician and vice president for community health at Nationwide Children's Hospital and Ohio State University here in Columbus, Ohio. Today's conversation is the third of six conversations related to alignment and advocacy, which refer to the roles that healthcare institutions can play to address social needs at the community level. Today, I'm very excited to talk to Reverend John Edgar, who's the executive director and pastor emeritus at United Methodist Church and community development for all people, and also a very good friend of mine. For the next half hour, John and I are going to talk about our partnership from both the healthcare and community development side, and different perspectives, what we've accomplished and the challenges of working together at times to improve the health of neighborhoods here in Columbus, Ohio. We're specifically going to talk about healthy neighborhoods, healthy families, our joint effort, and uh, healthy neighborhoods over the past 11 to 12 years has produced uh, or in development or in contract or already developed roughly $100 million in housing, workforce projects, fresh produce, market delivery and bike co-op and many other initiatives that I hope we get to talk about today. But John, in starting, you know, what's a nice Methodist minister like you doing talking about community development? I have been a United Methodist pastor for
2: over 40 years, and for the last 20 years, I've been working on the south side of Columbus in a neighborhood that's basically the backyard of Nationwide Children's Hospital. And so along with uh, launching a church that's actually the most diverse United Methodist church in North America in terms of race and social class, we also launched a Community Development Corporation with the goal of trying to improve quality of life, especially for low-income folks in this community, and to be able to create a sustainable mixed income neighborhood where ideally using the language that we have claimed from the hospital, that we would be creating an alignment to improve uh, the social determinants of health. And so for us in the first language, the kind of religious side, hey, we say we're just trying to build a front porch of the kingdom of God. What we're after is a sustainable opportunity rich community, realizing that housing first is the social determinant of health that creates a platform for everything else.
1: John, who are the partners that come together to make up the HNHF collaborative in your mind?
2: Would respond, Kelly, first of all, by answering
1: your question in the
2: traditional way, which is that the primary partners are Nationwide Children's Hospital, this anchor institution. It's one of the largest pediatric hospitals in the country. And I think the last I heard, over 14,000 employees on the main campus. So the hospital is is the key partner and then community development for all people. We serve as the partner that's kind of the community connector. We do direct services with about 40,000 different low-income people on an annual basis. We run a fresh market that provides fresh produce, something called the free store where people can shop free of charge for household items. And so we can connect with the people in the neighborhood which leads me then to want to say that from my perspective actually the most important partner is the people in the community we operate from concepts known as asset-based community development where we say that the people are the primary asset and if we listen to folks as they talk about their hopes and their dreams Instead of making assumptions about what's broken, deficient, or lacking, then all of a sudden, the people are the ones who articulate what they want to see happen next, and then we can begin to bring resources together to make that happen. So it's the hospital, it's us, the people in the neighborhood, but then the partners to get to those numbers that you were talking about of hundred billion million of investment, well, that includes the city of Columbus, other government entities, foundations, and particular particularly philanthropic individuals. So everybody comes together and we hopefully have a catalytic impact.
1: John, those are big numbers. And uh, you and I have talked about not appreciating the potential scope when we first started. So how did it start? What would you give us the brief history?
2: Community Development for All People got started on a very small scale doing affordable housing in 2005. Once again, we did that because we're just listening to people. And we said, well, what would you like to have happen in your lives? And so many people were saying they just wanted a safe, decent place to live. Some people were frustrated that their landlords were taking their money, but wouldn't repair the furnace or you know, make certain that the plumbing worked. Other folks were um, living on the land or moving from one friend's couch to another relative's back porch. And so a lot of people just wanted a decent place to live. So that's where we started and about three years into that we were approached by some of the senior leadership out of nationwide children's hospital. As the hospital was launching what you previously referred to as a healthy neighborhoods healthy families initiative, so we decided to do this joint venture and early on. And it's still the same process, dozen or so years later. But we began by forming a separate not-for-profit corporation called Healthy Homes that's owned by Community Development for All People, but it's staffed and funded through Nationwide Children's Hospital. So we started with one full-time staff person that the hospital hired that actually knew something about housing development. Uh-huh. And now that's grown to a team of eight full-time people doing housing development through this initiative. And without belaboring it, Kelly, what I would say seems to me that stands out as the real key aspect of the secret sauce, so to speak, is the way in which over time, we've come to know and trust each other more. Early on, I would suspect that the hospital may have been suspicious that we couldn't deliver. And on our side, we were concerned about whether the hospital was just doing this kind of as a media ploy or whether they just wanted a defensible border for the hospital where patients and staff would feel safer. But over time, we have come to know and trust each other that we have aligned mission, that we do authentically want the same outcome. We want a community where everybody can thrive and where every child and every family has an opportunity
1: not only to have good health outcomes, but to be able to thrive and achieve their dreams. John, as usual, you got to the heart of the matter about relationships, and so that that doesn't come easy. So, what what did it take? How do healthcare institutions that, for lack of a better term, speak corporate corporaties, and residents who speak democracy in the community and faith organizations that are religious come together and speak the same language?
2: It seems to me, Kelly, that what has worked for us, you and me personally, but the other key players in this has been the willingness to express authentically who we are and what we're trying to do. In other words, I, I think we found common vocabulary, yes. And a lot of that is the language of social determinants. And, but the language I think emerged out of the willingness of each of us to honestly share in our own first language what it is we care about and what we were trying to achieve, and as we did that, it became more and more clear that we did have, you know, shared missional goals. There's a sense in which each of our individual understandings of true north, where we wanted to go, actually we're pointing in the same direction, and then the other thing I would say, without overemphasizing it, there's some some things happen only in the midst of the journey and so you know to some degree it's it's getting to know what, you know one another in, in different ways you know early on tim robinson who was the cfo at the hospital at the time is now the ceo spending time with him and hear him talk about really the joy and excitement that he experienced in seeing the transformation where vacant blighted houses were coming back to life but not just the property but it was so clear, he really was jazz about thinking that the impact would be more than treating one sick or injured child, but you know, language that you've coined, but that he certainly embraced, that believing that the neighborhood itself could become the patient. And seeing that sense of passion in him, as well as you and others, certainly resonated with me, the people on our staff. And then as we were introducing people from the neighborhood into these conversations, that became catalytic.
1: Yeah, I think I've been also fascinated with how each of our sectors, you realize healthcare was not a single unitary voice. There's individual people who are making decisions, and you can approach them in different ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for us, thinking the neighborhood was a neighborhood and had one voice was eye-opening. I mean, some of the early changes of shutting down certain businesses and opening up new ones that were different had its positives and negatives. Learning to hear the diversity within the voices in the room.
2: Yes, absolutely. That is key. When I talk about that the people are the primary asset, that's true, but that's hundreds, in fact, thousands of individuals and and their experiences. Kelly, we're talking about this and, and just thinking back, I believe another aspect, it's in the same zone, but part of what made it come alive, I think for some of the senior hospital folks, is when we were inviting you and and, uh, Tim Robinson and others to come to some of the events that we were doing so that it wasn't just that we said, hey, there are 20 some thousand folks that got free clothing from the free store but when we did things like in the effort to ensure that babies would thrive into a first birthday we started holding these community birthday parties four times a year to celebrate every baby that reached that milestone before covid we'd have 300 plus people packed in to our assembly space and when you and tim robinson and and others came there was there was a type of authenticity in those encounters, too, because certainly we weren't controlling who you could talk to. I mean, you, know, I mean, yeah, if you were at some of those, those things were kind of wild, open events. I mean, they were joyful, but it was possible to create encounters that weren't focused exclusively on a clinical or medical intervention around a particular child and a particular presenting problem. But these were folks in the midst of a journey trying to make certain that their their children and their infants would thrive. And so it's only an illustration, but I think it was in those encounters that we began to see the validity of what each other were really achieving. And then that that enhanced the confidence of, well, let's go try to do the next great thing.
1: I frequently tell people when they ask that one of the biggest things I've seen change in the neighborhood is our own institution. Passion people feel about it. The part It used to be us and them yeah. talking yeah. about the neighborhood, and now it's, what are we going to do to make this better? Right. And so we've gone from us and them to we. and Our staff feel that way, which is a remarkable transition over the years.
2: And again, in the same
1: spirit of that, if I've got it correct,
2: every one of the folks who come to do their residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital does tour through the neighborhood, but that includes those residents coming into our main campus and hanging out with people who are shopping in the market, folks who are volunteering in the free store. And there is a kind of camaraderie that emerges in that this shift from us versus them to, as you said, a more global understanding of we. We are all in it together.
1: John, how do you believe that the goals of CD4AP are being met? So, if Kelly, in terms of how those goals
2: really are playing out for community development for all people, what we are seeing very much is a transformation in the neighborhood around us. Early on there was so much of the blight, vacant abandoned houses that were very discouraging for for everybody, you know, and and activities that were detrimental that were occurring there. And so as the properties improved, then we were able I think to convince ourselves that we could move the needle on, on other things. So we began to you know, look at things like food security, you know, with the fresh market, transportation issues, working with, with kids and after school programs and all of that. And, and so those programmatic things were emerging and gave us confidence that we were going someplace. Um, and then to, to kind of extrapolate just a little bit further. What we also saw was that every time that we were advancing, kind of getting around a bend in the road, there were a new set of challenges there. And so a lot of what we are facing right now is the challenge that come with the success we've had, in particular, what's happening with rising property values in in our community is we got rid of the blight there was a lot of opportunity for private market folks to come into the community, buy up the remaining vacant properties or even properties that were rented, push tenants out, flip them. So this concept of gentrification. And so with the hospital, we now, I actually do believe, are leading the nation and looking at what does it take to create a sustainable mixed income community. If the neighborhood's the patient, it's not just a matter the physical part of that, but what happens with the people who are there? So how do we avoid displacing the very people that we're trying to help? And so the efforts that we are now doing with the hospital to focus almost exclusively on affordable rental or concepts for first-time home ownership to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. I think these are illustrations of how this one big goal But that we are tackling different parts of the journey incrementally. And I am excited at this point at the success we're seeing at ensuring that as the neighborhood becomes safer and more opportunity rich, we can guarantee that low income people can remain in the community.
1: John, besides our own efforts to make sure there's affordable rentals available for lower income people that along the median income distribution, one of the questions that's come up is is the threat of displacement and the private investment spurring our our advocacy efforts too or are we advocating for different policies or uh, encouraging new uh, rules that might help us in that way?
2: Yes in two or three ways we talk about how our own efforts and move to advocacy and then come back onto the debate. so part of this has to do with the tools that government can bring to bear to ensure long-term affordability so tax abatements that are tied to rent staying affordable efforts to cap property taxes for low-income homeowners so that the taxes themselves don't force them to sell We're doing really well on getting tax abatements for affordable rental development, this capping of property tax. There's an element of that right now in Ohio, but it definitely needs to be enhanced. There's a lot of advocacy right now about how we can do that. Also, our community, Central Ohio now has one of the most aggressive, although it's fairly recent, land trust, which is a tool in which we can do home ownership put significant government and private plan for the investments to hold down costs, but have those subsidies stay with the property over time so that we can have long-term affordability even with ownership. And so some of those tools we're both using, but we're also refining them and then moving at the city, county, and state level to look for legislative adjustments to maximize that potential.
1: So John, I of course like to answer it, but I'd like to also have you say what what the hospital does to contribute to this part, because I know what you do now, but also how you think what the hospital motivations are or what benefits you see for them. So I would start by going back to the early days. It's something I
2: meant to say and didn't before. I think the single smartest decision that the hospital ever made in this was at the very beginning when Tim Robinson as as the CFO suggested that the hospital back then just give $100,000 a year to community development for all people for general <laughs> operations so that I would spend less time hustling money could spend more time trying to deliver on these shared dreams. So, but uh, and, and those investments from the hospital have increased over time, but it did matter and it still matters because the hospital has some financial strength that nobody else does have. And so to be very intentional about how that money is used, including to strengthen the nonprofits they work with, that's one part of it. Clearly, as, as we already said, the hospital's willingness to recruit and pay for high quality staff whose expertise is in housing development or other aspects of neighborhood transformation, that's been incredibly beneficial. And then the hospital as I've come to discover has a pretty serious marketing department and also you have full-time lobbyists and so when we start talking about advocacy to be able to do kind of an inside and outside game for lack of a better phrase where you know we can organize people at the neighborhood level hold town hall meetings and other things and then you can through the staff that you have do some pretty impressive inside negotiating with key business and governmental leaders
1: I also thought maybe you'd like to comment, I'll I'll do a little bit, but about how ACOs and contracting dollars can help. And turns out, personally believe, and I'd be curious if you agree, that the presence of a fully capitated accountable care organization called Partners for Kids at Nationwide Children's Hospital that ensures all the Medicaid children in central Ohio to the tune of $1 billion a year is a strong driver of improving health in the community through investments in neighborhoods. But do you feel like that's been part of the conversations for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I still remember that the day I asked you what the heck's an ACO and you
2: explained it to me. Uh, But since then, yes, because even Even in my conversations, you with other senior hospital folks, this ability to talk about kind of a double bottom line, you know, if not a triple bottom line, but at least, you know, hey, there's a missional goal. We all care about these kids and we do want the the best health outcomes for them and their families. But also to say that there's a business component of this, not not 100%. In fact, you've taught me over time that it's a bad idea to argue to do the right thing solely on the basis of, of the business dollars. But to have an accountable care organization that receives money on a capitation rate, and so the healthier the kids are, the better the bottom line is is an incredible additional motivation and again not to minimize the yearning of senior hospital folks to just have low-income families thrive but to know that so much of the business of the hospital is treating low-income folks children and to the degree you keep them healthy and out of the hospital is how you make money in that or or don't lose money because it is a nonprofit hospital, I, I think is incredibly significant. And I would argue, Kelly, that you and I are still finding our way forward to best articulate back to the hospital and the ACO Leadership Partnership for Kids that double bottom line value
1: on the work we Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's very difficult. Why does a hospital or healthcare institution take on community development work and alignment work in the community, especially when there's concentrated areas of disadvantage, like the South Side is the largest rates of vacancies in all of Central Ohio when we started. You do have to have some financial support, which is the keeping children well, But there's also marketing results when the mayor and the governor come over and cut the ribbon on on the new bike co-op or opening up the food pharmacy or those -hmm. things are press events and a lot of positive things. New partnerships, uh, new community developers and private developers who want to be on the board now and Mm -hmm. make donations to the hospital because they see the future of, of neighborhood development in the region. So those things all are important. And I think the hardest part is actually saying, are we really helping child health outcomes? I mean, Mm -hmm. we know we're helping the neighborhood be safer. We know we're helping the housing stock. We know Mm -hmm. there's more affordable rentals available. We know there's kids walking to school, but are children healthier? And we struggle to document that. Yeah. And of
2: course, that's some of the research you're doing right now. From what I understand from reading some of the the summaries of some of your work and your colleagues, the trending is there. Part of it is that these are long term interventions that matter over time, and it's difficult always to be able to measure that impact in a short-term study. But we are seeing things that are improving. You talked across the years about infant mortality rates as kind of a canary in the coal mine that can be looked at, and we are seeing benefits there. And one of the initiatives that we do has has had a zero infant mortality rate over a six-year period. Now, again, it's, it's a small number of families we impact, but the trend lines seem to be there and hopefully enough to convince the ACO Partnership for Kids to continue these investments along with the hospital and to attract the attention of other hospitals across the country. Because together, we could be doing so much more than just one hospital, one neighborhood, one CDC, trying to be a pilot that illuminates a way
1: forward. I I think we're getting some of those encouragements. And I think the hospital right now is telling me at least that we don't have to have a hospital bottom line improvement. They're already seeing trends enough that they're happy as the accountant department, uh, but they feel like the other benefits have been so great from politics, abatements, other relationships with the government and other advocacy groups have have really impressed them. So how would you tell faith-based groups to move forward, John, in approaching hospitals?
2: I would encourage faith-based groups to take the first step. I uh, have also to learn some of the language of social determinants of health because I think it translates very easily into faith based principles of missional transformation of a community. But yeah, for faith-based groups to step out, to approach hospitals, but to do it from strength rather than weakness, to never approach a hospital and say, we need your help because we can't afford you know, to maintain our facility, but rather to say that we are building relationships in the community. This is what people are yearning for. Together, we could make this happen. I think that's a great place to begin. And then I would say from the other side, for healthcare care institutions. institutions to look around and try to identify who in the community is already doing something that's building relationships of authenticity with poor folks, and then talk about coming together for programmatic interventions that move the needle, get that alignment to get better health outcomes. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, that's all we have time for today. I want to say thank you to John for his insights, for his leadership in the community, for radical change that he has helped pilot uh, on the South side and, and for our friendship. Thank you all for attending. The next Coffee and Science is in two weeks on October 22nd. it will be a conversation between Bikha Pham and Mike Kroprowski on advocacy strategies to act on housing as a political determinant. So please join us then and thank you again.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Siren Coffee and Science series, a project of the Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network at UCSF. Raven Forest Communications does our editing and sound design. Susan Shepard designed our cover art, and Aurélien Joukla composed our music. Laura Gottlieb, Dylan Gonzalez, and Yuri Cartier, that's me, produce the podcast and the live event series. Join us for our next live event by visiting sirenetwork.ucsf.edu. Questions or comments? Email us at siren at ucsf.edu. And lastly, let it be known that the views and opinions of the participants on this podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, UCSF Medical Center, or any entities or units thereof. Take care.